You are listening to Your Practice Made Perfect, support, protection, and advice for practicing medical professionals. Brought to you by SVMIC. Hello and welcome to this episode at SVMIC of our podcast. My name is Brian Fortenberry, and I'm very excited because we have a fantastic guest with us today. We have Dr. Lloyd here to talk about addiction and the Tennessee Medical Foundation and all those issues surrounding that. Dr. Lloyd, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Brian. Before we jump into talking about the specifics, tell us a little bit about yourself, and I guess you really can go ahead and start talking about your background. Let's start walking down the road of your life experience. Professionally, I'm I'm an internal medicine physician by trade. Okay. I was born and raised in East Tennessee, a little town called Jonesboro, and went to University of Tennessee to undergraduate, and then uh, did medical school and residency at East Tennessee State University. And I was a chief resident my last year in residency there. From there, I went on to be a a faculty at East Tennessee State University's Quillen College of Medicine for 10 years, and uh, followed that up by chief of medicine at the Mountain Home VA Medical Center before I took my current job. So uh, I'm an East Tennessee boy, grew up in just the very foothills of, of rural Appalachia, which is, you know, most people are aware of is basically the buckle of the uh, Oxycontin belt, the opioid crisis uh, that we currently face. And interesting, Brian, you know, growing up, I never, I never really had trouble with drugs. You know, like anybody growing up in that area, a little marijuana here and there. I was at University of Tennessee at Knoxville in the 1980s. And, you know, the big thing in the 80s was cocaine. All right. I yeah, mean, that was the, right. that was the big drug. And, and when I was a sophomore at UT, I was a big sports fan. And, um, there was a basketball player from University of Maryland named Lenny Bias. Oh, yeah. So he was the second pick, overall pick. And my, my favorite team, the Celtics, picked him. And the night he got drafted, he snorted cocaine and died of a fatal arrhythmia. And that was a big story at the time, too. It was enormous. It was a huge story. And, and you know, apparently it was the first time he ever used, and all indications was it, it was. And I just remember any time I was faced with cocaine through college, I never did. I always thought about that. That was enough to, oh, to yeah. steer you clear Absolutely. of Absolutely. You know, I kind of wonder where that went. All right. Now, you know, later in my life, because opioids are, are way more deadly than, you know, cocaine, but, you know, it really did. And so alcohol wise, I was a binge drinker. I wasn't a daily drinker at I all, gotcha. but certainly a binge drinker, which is very common in college. But uh, I was able just to, you know, before I went to med school, I just lay that down. I never had any problem quitting just. So, you know, I don't want to do this anymore, and I didn't. So it didn't affect at all your ability in academics in school or medical school or anything no, else then? No, I never got in trouble with it. You know, I had some. I had a couple of close incidences, mainly around sporting events like most right. people. And, and, you know, the 80s were a little different when it comes to things like that. But uh, I guess now I would have, would have probably gotten into trouble with things like public drunkenness. But it was a binge episodic thing. It was never daily, and I was never dependent on it. So, yeah, I was able to lay it down. As a matter of fact, I didn't drink a, a single drop of alcohol all through four years of med school. You know, I just didn't at all. I was, you know, had a young family. And to be honest with you, I was scared about being able to pass med school. I didn't, you know, <laughs> I was a, I was a non traditional student and, and, uh, I was 27 years old and, and had, uh, two kids. And, and the very first exam I failed, I made a 69 on it. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I've, you know, I've quit my job and, and I've got two children here. And, and, uh, uh it was funny because that really helped me. You know, I went straight for help and instead of running, I, I ran to help and, you know, wound up doing very well in med school and, and residency. And, uh, you know, my last year of residency, at the VA in, in Johnson City, I was getting ready to step out into practice. And, you know, that's a scary thing for, you know, resident. we can complain all we want about, I and mean, we didn't have work hour restrictions back then. So, you know, we were working right. all the time. 
but but it was still a protected environment. You know, we had a tendings name on the bottom line. We, you know, when it started rolling downhill, it rolled on past you. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so, I was getting ready to step out of that protected environment into a job that I really wanted. I wanted to teach other doctors. I wanted to be a faculty member. I wanted to round in the hospital teaching residents and students. And and I had that job. I had the opportunity to do that, but it still felt like I had all this anxiety, and I felt like I had depression as well. And I was driving home from work one day, and and uh, I pulled up there uh, in a red light uh, on Market Street in Johnson City, right in front of Colonel Steve's liquor store. I reached over to my glove compartment and flipped the glove compartment open. I still don't know what I was looking for. And there were some old Norcos in there, uh, hydrocodone. Okay. That I had from a dental visit months before, you know, and you know, you go to the dentist and they do a procedure and then they load you up with, you know, opioids leaving because they don't want you to call back. Right. And I didn't take them. I, it didn't hurt. So I threw them in the glove compartment. And I remember looking over there and seeing it and thinking, you know, my patients take these things all the time. And so I took one out of the package. It was a little sample and broke it in half. So that's two and a half milligrams of hydrocodone. Threw it in my mouth. And at the time I was living out in Boone's Creek, so it was about 10 minutes away, maybe. Yeah. And by the time I got home, I felt like I'd found a cure for my anxiety and depression. It was really the most amazing thing in just that short amount of time. And within three years, I was using the equivalent of 500 milligrams of oxycodone a day. Wow. Right. If you want to put that in hydrocodone terms, they're pretty similar. And Vicodin, that'd be 100 Vicodin pills a day. That's really dangerous. It, I mean, it's it a wonder me you're right. even here. That's a tremendous amount yeah. of narcotics. It really is. You know, for the longest time, as it got towards the end, because this all happened over about a three-year time period, three and a half years, as I got towards the end, I was so scared to count. But I knew, you know, I knew if I got a bottle of 90 in the morning that it was gone by the end of the day. So I knew I was over 90. Wow. You know, the, the feeling there is so helpless. And, and, you know, the things that happen, you know, there's a thousand stories you look back on and, you know, sometimes cringe and, and almost cry. But I'll, I'll tell you one in particular. I, I love coaching baseball. I'm a, oh, I'm a baseball guy. I love baseball. You know, I, I ran into some kids I coached this past weekend, and, and uh, you know, they're all in professional baseball now. And I've got one one of my former players is a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. And so I had some really good players. My buddies told me I should have won more games. But, um, <laughs> you know, we were playing in the State Little League Tournament in 2003. Nothing I would rather do than hang out with these little boys. We had so much fun. But I was addicted to pills. And we're getting ready to play in the state finals against Lexington, Tennessee. State Little League Finals, Johnson City, you know, we made it to the finals, and I had the best player in the state, Daniel. I was out in the outfield messing around with the kids before the game, and, and I dropped my little pill carrier, uh, right? The yeah. top of it came off, and I realized as we were walking into the dugout that, that I didn't have them. And so the kids are in there, you know, getting excited. We're getting ready to play in the state championship game, and I'm out in the outfield, you know, digging around through the grass, you know, looking looking for pills. You know, the kids don't know that. They know about me. I've been very open with this. But that's a moment that I haven't talked about very much that really impacts me a lot now uh, looking back on it because what a special time. What a special time with those kids. We lost. Uh, we finished runner-up mainly because uh, I'm not a very good manager. And I just think of how sad that was. I forgot about everything else uh, at that moment. And, you know, it's one of the things that I've, I've been on a quest for, you know, really the last 13 years to to try to figure that out. You know, how does that happen? And and I actually know how it happens. I mean, the, the, the reward center of our brain, which is responsible for our basically our drive to live, is a part of our brain that's hijacked by, by opioids or any drugs, by fact, but particularly opioids. And so literally, if you your cravings for, for these drugs are 10 times stronger than a normal person's cravings are for food when they're hungry. So when you start to look at it in that perspective, if you don't have the drug, what will you do to get it? 
Well, and the answer is anything, absolutely. right? Absolutely. I mean, what would you do to live? Right. You know, people who are, are starving on an island will, will self-cannibalize, right? They'll eat themselves. They'll right. eat the people with them. And so your, your desire to live is, is really strong, and that's the same area of your brain that, that these drugs hijack. And at that moment, you know, for me, my son was on that team. Uh, those kids I had played with, I can't tell you how many hours. And the good thing for me was, you know, things come come full circle. You know, three years later, I'd gotten help, and we made it back to the state finals, and we won. And, uh, you know, it was a great moment. It was a great moment, you know, one, because we won, but two, because I wasn't out in the outfield searching for pills in the grass. Right. right. And then right. I say that flippantly, but it's the truth. The one thing that has already stuck with me that you said was the appetite for the medication is 10 times greater than the normal person's appetite for food. And, you know, it's easy for us to always say, well, this guy, you know, or lady missed this so important event for their child or missed this or messed that up or gave up. You know, I've been even guilty before of seeing superstars and athletes go, you've got everything you could possibly want in life. Right? Why in the world would you waste it on that? Well, that's my answer. Whenever I hear you say the appetite for the medication is so great that nothing else truly matters at that moment. The people that I love to treat now are IV drug-dependent pregnant women. I mean, it's it's the most fun I've ever had in medicine. I get people all the time say, Steve, you know, these women just need to put it down. They're hurting their children. You know, their babies are born dependent or addicted, and, you know, they just need to quit. And I said, well, thank you. you know, yes. That's that was very helpful. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't think of that. Uh, but, but that's a flippant answer that I, that I don't give anymore. But I, I say, you know, that I agree with you, but it'd be easier for you to stop eating. And then that's actually true. And, uh, you know, I think about this all the time. We're talking before we got started here. I grew up in, in rural Washington County, Tennessee. As a little boy, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, if I look into my future and say, you know, what's your life going to be like at 50, Steve, which is how old I am? I couldn't imagine this life, right? I mean, I can't imagine the, you know, the places I get to go, uh, the sure. restaurants I get to eat in, uh, the cars I drive, the, the neighborhood I live in. I mean, as a little boy, beyond my wildest imagination. Getting to sit here with me and Absolutely, talk. Absolutely, right. I mean, right to hear the SVMIC. I mean, it doesn't get much <laughs> higher than that. And uh, I couldn't fathom that. You know, a, a kid like me coming from where I came from, graduating med school. Wow. You know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to dream it, but, but it didn't matter. Once I became dependent, once I became truly addicted, uh, the only thing that mattered was that. I used to get up every morning and, and, you know, at night I'd withdraw, right? I mean, I'd wake up in a pool of sweat and I was in my, you know, mid to, uh, well, 34, 35 years old, not an old guy at all. Sure. And when I woke up in the morning, I felt like an 80 year old man. And, uh, you know, I'd go into my bathroom where I get dressed in the morning. And I've got two pictures there of my kids. That, and at the time, my wife had taken them. And, and uh, she had my son's picture made in the clothes I wear to work. And, you know, they, of course, they were draped all over. Right. She had my daughter's picture made in a wedding dress that, that she married me in. And those are still my favorite pictures. And I used to lay those pictures out on the counter in the morning and look at them and cry because I couldn't quit. And I'd look down at those pictures and like, look, man, <laughs> you're living a dream here. What What is going on? And then, you know, a handful of pills, uh, you know, in my mouth or up my nose and, and out for another day. It's a pathetic, scary existence, Brian. And I lived it for about three and a half years. You have the conflict as you stare at pictures of family and things that are just vitally important to you, knowing that is my meaning in life or what I want my life to mean. 
In my other hand, I'm holding a handful of pills, and this is what my brain has said now life is. It's all about this. And that personal conflict that you have, but the strength of the addiction is so bad that when the moment to choose comes, you can put the pictures down and pick the pills up is just beyond my comprehension of understanding the demons that someone has to deal with there. I can't say it any better than that. That's exactly the choice you're faced with. You know, people will ask you, you know, what are your priorities in life? And, you know, particularly people who are, you know, involved in faith-based organizations, who use those to be something like God, family, job, you know that. Right. And I could write that down all day long. The truth was it was pills. And pills was number one because I couldn't do anything else without those. The existence that you have, you know, think about waking up every morning and say, okay, I've got to have 100 pills today. How am I going to get them? Right. And the problem is, is that's 24-7, 365. Talk about a drain, right? And, you know, my worst fear was going on vacation. If I'm going to go on vacation, my drug supply is at home, right? It's not in Orange Beach, Alabama, where we go on vacation. Right. So towards the end, I um, this was just a few months before I was fortunate enough to get to go to treatment, we took off to Orange Beach, Alabama, and I actually had my hands on 700 pills, which is a lot, right? And I thought, okay, I can relax and, you know, have a good time at the beach and, and not have to worry about pills. But, you know, like any good person with addiction, there's a lot of pills, and so I took a few more today, and I won't take as many tomorrow, and the next thing I know, I ran out on Thursday, right? And and so now you're faced with, you know, being with your family at the beach, should be having the time of your life, and, and now you're going to get dope sick. And uh, so I was in South Alabama, and, and I was thinking, well, I'm going to be dope sick for three days if I don't su- do something. And I thought, surely I can find a pill mill, right? We're in South Alabama. So I said, I'll, I'll just, uh, you know, drive around to a bunch of primary care docs offices and look for out-of-state cars in the parking lot and the hood up and people sleep in the back seat and a bunch of energy drinks and cigarettes on the ground. And I'll, you know, I found a pill mill. You found it, right? right? And uh, every single place I went to, Brian, looked legitimate. Everyone. I was heartbroken. <laughs> and uh, so I drove back to the condo. And right before the condo was a, was a Rite Aid pharmacy. And uh, I pulled into that pharmacy and I sat there and, and I thought, you know, I could, I could write myself a script. Right. I mean, I can. I've got a DEA license and those cross state lines. And, right. But I thought, you know, somebody will track that and you can't prescribe for yourself. So I'll get caught. And, and so I got the idea I was going to rob the pharmacy. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a pretty sobering thing to talk about. Uh, cause I'm an East Tennessee boy. I've got guns, right? You right. know, it's, it, yeah. you know, I've, I've, I haven't shot any of them, but I got a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm there in, in my car. Uh, and, and that's what I'm contemplating. And I know you guys will probably remember this, but a couple few years ago up in a little town called Bean Station in East Tennessee, there was a former police officer addicted to opioids, walked in a pharmacy, a little local pharmacy, and he shot four people at point blank range, killed two of them on the spot. Uh, the other two miraculously survived in order to get opioids. And, and a judge I work with up there was a judge in that case. And, and he actually showed the video of that when we were doing a talk one time. And, and I made the mistake of not watching the video before the talk. So oh, I'm sitting wow. there watching this thing for the first time, and Judge doesn't know that story that I just told you. And as I sat there and watched that, what you were talking about earlier, man, that could have been me. And I can't recover from that. That young man wound up with two, uh, two life sentences uh, to run consecutively without the possibility of parole. And, uh, and that very well could have been me. And, and I promise you that, that, that somebody in the throes of addiction, there's nothing off limits of what they will eventually do in order to get their drug. It, it's, it, there's just not. And uh, luckily for me, I had, you know, what people in 12 step parlance call a, a moment of clarity. 
Right. And that moment of clarity for me was, I can't recover from this. If I do this, I, I can't bounce back from this. And the, the really weird thing is, Brian, I mean, that, that's a pretty low point right there. And I was just a few weeks away from, from being intervened on to get and go to treatment. But even at that time, I didn't have any idea how to get help. You know, I, I was there. I, I, I wanted to quit so badly. Every single morning I got out of bed, I prayed to God I could quit that day. And you know, and when I got back home, I had these I had these duffel bags that I carried my clothes in, you know, back and forth to work because I'd work out or you know do stuff like that. Sure. Run. And I had all these pills in the bottom of it, but they weren't they weren't the opioids. Right? I, I would Google, you know, how to get off of opioids, and they said, well, things like you know, symptomatic treatment, beta blockers, clonidine. You know? So I had all these pills, right? I got access right. to them in my drug cabinet. Yeah. And so I, I was trying to detox myself. Right, and and the thing that I realized as I as I was getting those pills out of my bag after I got back from treatment was, I was doing a pretty good job of treating the symptoms, but I never stopped the drug. Right, right, right. and and so I didn't have any idea there was anybody could help me. I'd never heard of the Tennessee Medical Foundation. I mean, I wouldn't know what that was. I probably would have assumed it was the TMA. Right. You know, and, and so I just didn't know that there was anybody who could help me. And there was one particular day in the ICU that that, that I gave up pretty much. Keep in mind, I'm using that amount of drugs. I'm working every day. I was wondering about that. You obviously get through medical school. You get your license. You're a practicing physician. If it is the fuel that keeps you going, you have to practice while on these medicines. Oh, no doubt. You put these boundaries out here for yourself. Right? I've heard of drinkers doing it. Right? I'm going to go drink before 5 o'clock, all those things. And then you right. bust through it, and you don't die. And so then you put another one out there. Right. And, and so that's kind of what I did. You know, I wasn't going to use it work. We have to. Because you, you're in withdrawals. You, you can't not use at work. And uh, so I, I saw patients on a daily basis impaired. And, and you know, and as I've talked about this before, the scary thing for me was is that I thought I was a better doctor, right? Because there were things that, that the normal person needs that I don't need anymore, right? right? I need very little food. I need almost no sleep. And you know, I can work like a Trojan horse, right? I mean, I, yeah. I can. I, I can just, I, I can go. It's amazing how you can, you can convince yourself sure. of stuff. Look, I can work harder and I can keep going and you convince yourself that everybody says this is bad and sure it's bad, but boy, look how much better it makes me at what I do. This can really happen to anybody. I was at really the peak of, of, of my existence from an education standpoint. And then, you know, I started taking pills. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm, I'm brighter. I feel like I can work harder. I feel like I can go longer. And there's all these positive rewards for that, right? I was the top producing internist in my practice. Uh, all three years that I used, all three years that I used, the students that I taught voted me the outstanding instructor in the field of internal medicine. Wow. The May graduation before I went to treatment in July, I was recognized as one of the top 10 instructors by the graduating students during their entire four years of med school. We got 230 faculty members. I mean, you're on top of your game absolutely in every part of your career, and you're using narcotics, and you feel like Superman. Every day. And I was I was rounding in the ICU at the time. You know the model. I mean, you're familiar with it. You got yeah. the attending in the middle, and then the med students. And I call it the wandering mass of dullness. But but <laughs> but that's not a, that's probably not not appropriate to say. But but you know, I was I was the attending in that, and, and we got down, we always started in the ICU, right? The sickest patients, right. and that's where they are. And so we we did that every morning. And we got down to the ICU one morning, and and this was again towards the end. And there's a lot of things that happened there really that snowballed on me that that helped me see the light, but. Uh, we'd had a drug overdose uh, come in the night before, and the intern was presenting to me, and she had overdosed on Tylenol. I took a moment back. We still had paper charts in. And I took a moment back from writing my note, and I said, uh, how many did she take? And I think he said 75. 
I was taking more than that every day. And you're like, that's acetaminophen, and I'm taking narcotics. Yep. Well, I mean, at the time, I, you know, I always wanted to get my hands on pure oxycodone because I knew how bad acetaminophen Because, I mean, you know this. I mean, if you work in a hospital, how many acetaminophen overdoses you treat? I mean, a ton, ton. right? Yeah. Way more than anything else. Yeah. But I knew every one of those hydrocodone, every one of those Lortab, every one of those Vicodin, uh, every one of those, you know, uh, combination drugs had, you know, 350, 375, 650 milligrams of Tylenol. Yeah. And what I had done was... I knew what the anecdote for Tylenol or that's an, right, N-acetylcysteine. Well, I can't really get that out of the ED. Uh, and so I went to a health food store. They actually sell it in pill form, right? It's called liver health, but I turned around the bottle. It's N-acetylcysteine. I didn't know the dose conversion. Right. And this is going to sound crazy. <laughs> but I would just kind of, if I took half a bottle of hydrocodone, I'd just take a half a bottle of N-acetylcysteine, right? And just figure it'd balance itself out, you know? <laughs> How crazy does that sound for a trained physician? But that's exactly what I did. <laughs> but we were in the ICU that morning, and the resident who I was working with that day looked at me, and he said, uh, he told me the number, and, and I, I couldn't write. I had my pen in my hand. I had the chart there, and I, I couldn't force my hand down to the note. And the kids are all looking at me, and I said, you know, I'll tell you what, guys, uh, we're going to do something a little different today. I said, you know, you guys got a bunch of work to do. You got dictations to get caught up on. Uh, I'm going to save you from me today, and I'm going to round by myself, and you all go off and, you know, get your work done. And I walked to the end. We were in the John City Medical Center, and I walked to the end of the hallway at the time where our bathrooms were, and I walked in that bathroom, and I closed the door, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I started crying. And I stayed in there for about an hour, and I thought, I'm going to die, and nobody's going to know. And uh, and I really believe that. Uh, I didn't know that there was anybody who could help me. And I, always, I look back on it now, and I think, you know, what do you think they do, Steve, at the Betty Ford Center and Hazleton? Because I'd heard of those places. But I didn't think anybody could help me. And uh, I thought that I would die because I, I never – I mean, I don't know how this is going to sound. I've never been a mean guy. I'm not a mean guy. Uh, I wasn't a doctor throwing scalpels or, you know, cursing out staff. It was never me. It's not my personality. And and when I would do things that were, you know, that should have raised an eyebrow, everybody would just laugh because it was me, All right. So Steve's rounding at 4 a.m. Well, he's a go-getter. Well, no, I was actually at home and couldn't sleep and thought, well, I might as well go round, All right. And right. so, you know, when you have a doc that's rounding at 4 in the morning, and, and you know, that, that should raise a red flag. And when you have a doc that's asking other docs uh, to, to write him a prescription because he can't get a hold of his, that, that should raise a red flag, right? Sure. You, there's not a doctor-patient relationship there. And uh, most things that I did, I am I am grateful for them. I'm grateful for the experience, you know, stealing from my family. I'm, I'm this may sound crazy, but I'm grateful for that experience because it helps me connect with people now. That's one of the most shameful things you can do. And usually, when I'm having trouble connecting with somebody, I can always get them with that one because when I spit that one out, they go, "Yeah, it, I did that too." It's too close to home it and does. it hurts too bad. Yep. And and now they've got me in front of them who's going, "Yeah, I did that." Right? You didn't invent that. Yeah, You know, that really helps the connection. But all those things, you know, coming together, you know, helped me to finally see. But that moment of, of being in that, that ICU bathroom and, and just crying. Was that your moment that everything started changing for you? Was, was that that was the turnaround yeah. point that you knew, if I don't get help, this is going to be the end for me? I knew I'd die. 
I knew I'd die because I wasn't on anybody's radar. I haven't, I wasn't doing things, uh, you know, that would, would get me on the radar. So it wasn't like you were doing over prescribing or prescribing to yourself. From a medical standpoint, you were doing everything within the lines of where you were supposed to be practicing. Right. So you're not going to come up on any report. You're not going to hit any data bank thing that people are going to go. We really need to go and investigate Dr. Lloyd. It was a situation that somehow you managed to stay off of everything. Every flag out there and still practice at the top of your game, yep. being a teacher and still not getting caught. You had to come to the realization without somebody else intervening on yourself, staring at yourself in the mirror of a bathroom in an ICU ward in uh, that I've got to change. That was your moment. It was. It was that, that was the very first one that, that really made me realize it. But, but you know, if I had lived... And, and I'm not convinced I, could, I would have lived, but if I'd have lived, I think things were starting to fall apart on me. I had a couple of car wrecks in my own driveway. Right? I didn't see a car there. I just backed into it. And, and that can happen, but it shouldn't happen three times. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a wreck in the mountains of East Tennessee when I hit black ice and, and uh, going after a Christmas tree. And, and I had my dad in the car with me up front and then my wife and two children in the back and, and hit black ice and skidded. And we actually hit a dump truck that was parked on the side of the road loaded with bricks and cinder block. And the dump truck bed came through and hit my dad in the head and cut him and, and knocked him out. Of course, I looked over and thought he was dead. And this is this should give you some idea of the mindset. But once I realized he was alive, I knew I was going to have to go to the hospital because I had broken ribs. I could feel them. I knew it hurt bad. And, and I said, okay, I've got to call ahead and make sure I get the right doc that won't drug screen me. Wow. Yep. That was the... I wasn't concerned about anything else. My kids are in the back seat. My wife is there. I've got, you know, my dad here beside of me bleeding. And my concern was I've got to get the right surgeon that I know won't drug screen me because he knows me. That is a perfect picture of your family and everything you hold dear right there at your fingertips. And your immediate concern goes to, I can't get caught because then I can't get more drugs. And if, if I can't get drugs, I'll die. And that's really it. And, and when I'm out doing what I do now in my regular, you know, in my day-to-day job, that's what I want people to understand. I didn't want to do that. I remember the day that I went from taking a half to a whole. Remember, because I told you I started out taking a half. Right. I remember the day I went from taking a half one to a whole one. I remember looking at myself in the mirror that day and going, uh, you know, there could be a problem here, Steve. But I, I didn't feel anything, and I wasn't anxious. I didn't have those depression symptoms, and so— Went on about my business, and then it slowly climbed and climbed and climbed. And then, you know, the first time I was dope sick, that's what I call it. But, you know, well, first time I was within withdrawals, I didn't know what it was. You know, I hadn't had Lortab for about a day and a half, and uh, I was at a at a convenience mart. And I thought, God, I'm getting sick. You know, I felt like I had the flu. Right. And um, in med school, we learn about withdrawal symptoms, but you know, there's a list of them on the chalkboard, right? Sure. I mean— I didn't know, and I'm chilling. My bones are hurting. I'm I'm sweating at the same time, and you know, my stomach's turning over and over. And I'm like, golly, I'm just getting sick. And you know, I got my hands on some Lortab probably a few hours later when that first one hit my mouth. I was like, ah, oh, you figured I it out. Got it. Yeah, yeah. That was an aha moment for me as well. Wow. But uh, there were some things that were starting to slip towards the end. My dean of academic affairs, a really good guy, called me in his office. He says, Steve, your, your work's getting shoddy. So that was kind of a first, uh-oh, you better watch out because people are starting to take notice. Yep. And he was a great guy. He was actually my first attending before he got the dean job. And I really loved him and respected him. And I know 
for him, that was a really hard thing to do because I'd never had anything but success. Right. And he said, your work's getting shoddy, Steve. And, uh, you know, I listened to that, and this one is a very telling one. As a clinician, every once in a while you'll go back and do lectures in the basic science years in the first yeah. two years of med school. And so one of my bio, biochemistry professors asked me to come back and do a talk on cholesterol. You know why cholesterol is important? He's in there drawing chemical pathways, but really the reason cholesterol is important is right, risk factor for vascular disease, heart attack, stroke, all that stuff, right? right. So I'm going to go back and tie it in for the students. And so I go and I do the lecture at the height of my impairment. And the students filled out, you know, evaluations of my lecture. So back then I didn't read email. I figured that if you wanted to talk to me, you could call me, right? right. <laughs> and, uh, and so there, there's obviously some things there that, you know, should have been signs, but that was one of them. And so I never saw those evaluations. And so I guess, what, two years later, I get back from treatment. So in the meantime, those kids are gone on to their third year, and, and I've gone on to treatment. Right. And so when I got back, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to get caught up on email. <laughs> I went through all of them, and I promise you there were thousands of them. Right? Really? It took me hour after hour. Now, some of them were dated and, you know, I could get rid of really quickly. And one night I was sitting in my office. It was late. And uh, I'd been out of treatment for about four months. Okay. Okay, I got out in October. So uh, this was probably February, March. And uh, I'd already been back. You know, I'd already been back rotating with the students in the the hospital and all that stuff. And I ran across that evaluation. Hmm. And I read it. And there were were comments in there like... um, I can't believe this guy is a doctor. I sure hope I don't turn out like Dr. Lloyd. This guy's an embarrassment to our school. Wow. Now, I'm already better now. Well, I'd always taken pride in my teaching. I'd always been recognized for it. And, and so well, I tell you, there were signs. That was a sign. I, I just didn't know it at the time. And right. So, and you know this, in the first two years of med school, I mean, you're with these folks every day. Sure. The second two years, you never see each other because you're spread all over everywhere. And so I'm sitting there in my office and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to be able to get these kids together. So I sat at my computer and, and got the class distribution list and I wrote them an email. And I told them that I just read their evaluation from two years ago when they were first year students. And I thanked them. I said, you know, your comments, while they were very hurtful, uh, were incredibly accurate. And as I, as I read them, I cried. And I'm so grateful I'm not there today. So in the meantime, uh, we're getting near April of the year. And I, I sent that email out right about March. And we get to April of the year, which is the time the students give out their teaching awards. And they have a big banquet. And I got notice right off the bat that, hey, you've been nominated for the Outstanding Instructor in Internal Medicine. I thought, well, that's not bad. I just got back from treatment, if you know. So, so I went, and, and I won. <laughs> and the young lady who presented it to me, she's a gastroenterologist now. Her name is Shafali, and, and Shafali said my name, and I was sitting there. I was like, oh, wow, you know, that's neat. And I walked up, and I hugged Shafali, and she was in that first-year class. She was one of those. That, one of those students, yeah. right? And she whispered in my ear uh, as she gave me the plaque. She said, Dr. Lloyd, we all read that email, and we couldn't even believe that was you. And so they didn't even really associate that person with who I was now. And so, you know, when we talk about neat moments, the Little League thing was a neat moment. Right. Professionally, that one was a really neat moment because I got to stand there for a second. The award was the award. Uh, What she said to me was paradigm shifting, right? And uh, I was grateful for her words right then because I have always taken pride in that. So the things that I loved, you know, started to slip away. Family, the things I loved about work. I had a president of my university at that time and dean of my med school. They didn't fire me. I'd had a good track record, and they really protected me. They said, you know, let's wait and see what we get back. And I'm really grateful for those two men because while most people I went to treatment with had, had lost everything, I got paid the whole time I was gone. 
Wow. I never missed a paycheck. Those guys really propped me up and, and gave me an opportunity that I wanted to make sure that I honored. And, and, and so far, you know, 13 years later, I think that I have. Uh, I think that they're glad with the decision that they've made. I'm not telling you I hadn't struggled at times. Sure. But I haven't relapsed, you know, and I haven't stuck a pill in my mouth. And my life revolves around educating people on addictive disease. I happen to be very fortunate to be a doctor. I'm pretty expensive to kick to the curbside. Right. It costs a lot of money to make me. State of Tennessee paid a lot for to educate me. And, uh, you know, we have people here in the state that, that don't have those same opportunities that I have. So I want to make sure that, number one, I honor that, and number two, that I don't forget what I was given. And uh, and that's what I try to do every day. And it's why I do stuff like this. I don't remain anonymous, uh, although you open yourself up because uh, you right. know, some people will come after you at times. But I found that the vast majority of the time, people are very kind and, and very forgiving. And we also know that 75% of them have been touched by addiction in their personal lives. And so I think it gives people hope. If you never saw anybody who got better, you wouldn't have any hope. That That is so true. You have to see the successes to appreciate that I could get there. And I want to ask you, because I'm so drawn to that moment that you're looking at yourself in the mirror, in that bathroom, right. and you're deciding, okay, I've got to get help. For that person that might be out there today, either potentially listening to this podcast or knows someone that has a professor or a colleague or a fellow student or resident with them, and they think, boy, a lot of this I'm hearing sounds a little too familiar when it comes to doctor insert name here. Give them advice or give them some help of being that person looking in the mirror. What were the next steps that you took? The moment you hit bottom and you realized, I've got to get help, what did you do next? I'd like to tell you it was me, but it wasn't. And I want to make this next part very clear because the answer to your question is, is you need to immediately call the Tennessee Medical Foundation. It'll be the best decision you ever make. But I want to lead into how I found them because okay. I, didn't, I didn't know that. I was taking my son down to meet my dad. My dad's an outdoor guy, loves to hike and all that. And my son was nine at the time. And so I took him down to Jonesboro to meet my dad to go hiking. And I used to carry my pills in the drink holder in my truck, right, right out in the open. I mean, right there. Right, hundreds of them. And so I took Heath down to meet Dad, and I met him in a grocery store, and Heath walked around the front of my truck. And, and to this day, I mean, even when I'm telling you this right now, I could have sworn I saw my dad walking away with Heath, right? Steve, we're going to take hiking. I'll bring him back to the house tomorrow. Right. So I saw him walk away. I reached over. I had 10-milligram Percocets in my drink holder. I took 15 of them. That's 150 milligrams right in my mouth. That's 150 milligrams of Percocet like that. And as soon as I got them swallowed, and it takes something to swallow 15 of them at once, I turned around, and my dad was standing right there. I mean, right at my window. And he looked at me, and he said, Steve, he said, did you just take a handful of pills? You know what my answer was? No. No. <laughs> I mean, I didn't do what you just saw me do. You know, that, that was my mindset. And he shook his head and said, all right. He said, all right. He said, well, be careful going home. I said, okay, Dad. So the next day when I was coming home from work, I ran in the corner. My house was up on the hill, and I saw my dad's truck in the driveway of my house. I knew what he was there for. I knew before I ever pulled up in the driveway, and I pulled up in the driveway, and he's standing there, and he says, hey, Steve, he said, we need to go see your sister. Well, my parents had gotten divorced about 10 years before, and me and my sister were estranged. I hadn't talked to her. And I said, I don't want to go see her. He said, yeah. He said, let's go. So we got in the truck, and we headed down the road, and we get out to the interstate, and he, he looks over at me. He says, Steve, he said, do you have a drug problem? I said, no, nah, Dad, I ain't got a drug problem. I said, I'm tired. I'm working multiple shifts, multiple hospitals, and you know, I'm young. I'm trying to you know, get my practice established. And he said, all right. We drove another couple of miles up the road, and he put his hand over on my knee, and he had a little tear in his eye, and he said, Steve, he said, you got a drug problem. And I now just broke down. I was the guy out in the middle of the ocean, you know, drowning, and somebody 
you know, drives by or comes by on a boat and throws you a life ring. And that's what dad did. And I looked at him and I started crying. I said, yeah, dad, I do. And I said, I'm going to lose everything. I said, I'm going to lose my medical license. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my cars. And he shook his head and he said, yeah, he said, but none of that stuff is going to do you any good if you're dead. And I haven't, I haven't really been able to figure out a comeback for that one yet. So we got over to my sister's office and, and she's there. She's the one who actually told him she thought I had a problem. She saw me at Walmart or somewhere and said, that's not my brother anymore. And so she started to see it. Yeah. And by the way, she and I have a great relationship today. So ironically, it brought that relationship back uh, full circle. But, um, she got on the computer and said, you know, basically just Googled, uh, you know, drug addicted doctors in Tennessee. <laughs> well, what pops up, but something called the Tennessee Medical Foundation. She said, have you ever heard of it? I said, nope. I said, well, there's a guy here in Johnson City who is the branch of it up here. His name was Jack Woodside, a family medicine physician. And, and actually at my school, I work with Jack. I knew him. And, and so I called Jack and he said, yeah, come see me. I went and saw him the next morning and, he, and I told him everything. And he said, yeah, Steve, he said, you're going to need help. You're going to need treatment. And so he put me in contact with the TMF. They gave me a list of places I could go. And there was one in Nashville called the Center for Professional Excellence, CPE. Yes. And it was at Grassmere. And I love Chip Dodd to death. Chip saved my life. But I tell Chip, I said, I didn't really research you very much, buddy. Um, you were in Nashville. My best friend lives in Nashville. And my wife is going to kick me out of the house. I know it. So at least I'll have a place to go when I get out. So that's how I picked CPE. <laughs> and so the next day, I was on the road from the Tri-Cities down to Nashville. I still had pills in my pocket. I still took pills all the way down. As a matter of fact, uh, the last pills that I ever had, uh, I walked to the corner of the parking lot at CPE, and at the time, the gorillas were just on the other side of the fence, and I tossed the Lord tab over there to the gorillas. Uh, I hope I don't. I hope I didn't hurt them. I was going to say the, and, the zookeepers. Thank you. Yeah, for that. yeah. That's if you see some, you know, see some withdrawing gorillas down there. It was me, but uh, you know, I walked in CPE, and and they took a look at me and said, you know, you need to go to Vanderbilt uh, for detox. And so I spent five and a half days at the Vanderbilt Institute for Treatment of Addiction. I want to say something about that. There were twenty four people on my service, including me. At the end of that five days, I was the only one of the 24 that got to go to treatment. The rest of those kids went back to the street. Wow. And I think about that every day. There's not a day goes by that that doesn't cross my mind in one form or another. And these are great kids. They're young, right? They're kids. The little girl who was next to me is from Mount Juliet. She was 19. I just won't forget them. But I got that help there at Vanderbilt, then went to CPE. And the very first night I got out of CPE, they had a doctor's meeting uh, for impaired physicians at Baptist Hospital downtown. Mm -hmm. It was in July, July 13th, and it was hot. And I had on a sweatshirt, and I walked in, and I met a guy named Roland Gray. He came up to me. He knew I was going to be there. He put his arms around me, and he said, Steve, he said, you're going to be okay. And that night, those guys and women in that room uh, went around, and they told how they got there. And I'm sitting there, drug addicted, you know, coming off, freezing to death. And I hear one guy who is the chief of orthopedic surgery at his hospital, another guy that's moved into hospital administration, and he's the CEO of his hospital, Roland Gray, who was a pediatrician, who is now the medical director for the Tennessee Medical Foundation. And it went like that all the way around the room. And for an hour, I felt better. I was sitting there thinking, well— these guys' lives don't appear to be over, and they've done some pretty bad stuff, and some of them have done stuff worse than me, and I started to get some hope. So if you're out there right now and you know somebody like this, first of all, get involved. I see people all the time, which is none of my business. It's absolutely your business. They're going to die, and I don't want to go to their funeral. Get involved. The second thing is call the Tennessee Medical Foundation. Now, Roland has since retired, but we have a new medical director, Mike Barron, who is every bit Roland Gray. He's a great guy. He is. Mike is kind, compassionate. He is incredibly non judgmental. I really couldn't think of anything that Mike wouldn't help me with now. 
so our physicians in the state need to realize this resource is here. And, and the weird thing is, I'm a proud member. I've been a member of the TMF for 13 years now, and I'm very proud of that. Sure. You know, when I go to get credentialed at a hospital or, or I took a job that I have now, it says, have you ever had an issue with drugs or alcohol? And I write, yes. Please contact Roland Gray. I have never even gotten a whisper back about that. Because I have maintained what I was supposed to do in my program with urine drug screening. I completed my five-year contract. I signed a lifetime contract after that because if I relapse, I hope I get caught early. I don't want to die. Right. And, and you know, my life has done nothing but climb up. So for the people out there right now who are still like that, you don't have to keep living like that. It's a horrible existence. Do I struggle now? Heck yeah. I've emotionally relapsed about 10 million times in the last week, but I haven't picked up. Right. And, and I've been given tools and I've been given resources. And the friends I have are all friends I met, you know, through the TMF. And they say you are never cured from addiction. Right. It is a constant battle it is. for years and years. And to hear someone like yourself who is at this point to say, you know, I still fight it. Mm-hmm. I still have that emotional component. It tells you that you can't do it by yourself for sure. You can't. And that's one thing right? I think that I want to point out here, because I get people all the time that say, you know, Steve, we know that you battle this on a daily basis and it's a struggle. It's not. I mean, if I had to go through every day white knuckling, I'd have relapsed a long time ago. Right. So the truth is, is, is that it's, it's not a daily struggle. The truth is, is I live my life like you guys live yours. Gotcha. There are times that cravings happen and it's been a while since I've had one and they've gotten less frequent through the years, but my relationships are what helps me. And, you know, struggled in my job a little bit over the past year. And, you know, Mike realized that and gave me a call, offered me some words of encouragement. And I know he's always there. And um, there was a book written, you know, on, on addiction in, in the past couple of years. And I recommend it to anybody who wants to learn about this. It's called Chasing the Scream. And it was written by a guy named Johan Hari. And Hari says at the end of his book, and he also says it at the end of his TED Talk. So if you want the book in 17 minutes, watch the TED Talk. He says at the end of his book, he said, I think it's the last sentence in the book. He said, the opposite of addiction is not recovery. The opposite of addiction is relationship. And and that's what Chip Dodd taught me at CPE. And and that's what Roland Gray and Mike Barron and, and Mitch Mutter and all the people that are my friends now, uh, you know, continue to teach me. And uh, for those people out there who are isolated, alone, whose families are falling apart, it doesn't have to go down the drain. You have a resource in Tennessee that uh, a lot of people don't know about, but I think it is the true diamond in our state because it certainly, it didn't give me my old life back. My old life stunk, okay? It, It gave me a life I couldn't dream of. And I've seen it happen time and time and time again. You know, we're here at SVMIC, and so I was worried about, am I going to be able to get my practice insurance when I want to come back? And you're like, you know, well, you're under the advocacy of the TMF, and the SVMIC actually spends less money and claims on you guys than it does on their general population. And that's just the way it is. And I had a doc down in, in Memphis the other night who was on the SVMIC board years ago. And the other thing, Brian, I've got to do is I've got to go to other states and talk about the TMF. You know, California, California has more impaired physicians than we have physicians. Uh, yet they do not have a physician's health program and their board of medical examiners uh, basically turns a blind eye to it. And I think that's a tragic, not only for physicians themselves, but think about me practicing. I may have thought I was a better doc, but I was not a better doc, right? right? They don't have a mechanism. So Tennessee's model with the Tennessee Medical Foundation, to me, is the premier model in the United States. I think other states are close. Kentucky is one that I think of off the top of my head. But the model that's been put together in our state and how it functions, while holding us accountable, it's not easy. Right. And if there are things that happen, then, then we're going to be held accountable and we're going to have to take measures to, to do what we need to correct it or there's, there's penalty. Sure. But the benefit far outweighs any downside. 
Well, I tell you, Dr. Lloyd, I'm left almost speechless, and that's kind of hard to do with me if you know me very much. The information that you have provided to us today, our listeners, I feel confident that there is somebody out there that's going to hear this, that they needed to hear this podcast. This is something that they either needed to hear for themselves or a colleague. And your words, and as you said, the success story is what's going to help them get through, get the help they need. And I couldn't agree with you more that the Tennessee Medical Foundation is exactly where they need to go to get that help. Thank you so much. I can't tell you that enough of how much we appreciate you being here today. You bet. That flew by. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Practice Made Perfect with your host, Brian Fortenberry. Listen to more episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and find show notes at svmic.com slash podcast. The contents of this podcast are intended for informational purposes only and do not constitute legal advice. Policyholders are urged to consult with their personal attorney for legal advice, as specific legal requirements may vary from state to state and change over time.